Well, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you are listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. And what do I got for you today? Today, we're going to be talking about Russian estimates of Ukraine's military losses. We're going to be talking about the NATO summit meeting or some of the more important takeaways from that. And then we're going to be talking about the U.S. out of ammo. All that and more coming up. let's get into the rapid fire news we have india launching the chandrayaan 3 uh lunar mission it's gonna land on the moon it's gonna rope around a little bit it cost them 75 million dollars and it has a payload of like 3895 kilograms uh so not the biggest payload but hey it's very cheap very very cheap so just a reminder that space is there and people are trying to get there. China, I know China's been a, a little more active. They, uh, not that long ago, they just set up their own little, uh, I was about to say moon base. That, now that would have been headline news, but no, they set up their own space station. So they, they have that now. And what can you say? Space is the final frontier. And I think that a lot of the sort of, resource constraints that we might have here on earth can be greatly alleviated if not completely alleviated by tapping into the vast resources of the final frontier which is space i mean hell we have we have a free mine just sitting there which is the asteroid belt you can get any, you can get anything you want there gold platinum silver copper nickel uranium lithium you what have you if you look for it hard enough you'll find it so in time when humanity you know stops fucking around and becomes a, a spacefaring civilization i don't think resources are going to matter as much now granted he who gets in first on the capture of those lucrative products and goods uh products and goods being rocks in the middle of space that happen to have metals on them they're going to get rich. It's going to be like the, the privateers who would raid the Spanish uh, treasure fleets when they came back from the New World, uh, back to Europe. It's going to be like that, except instead of it being owned by someone else, it's yours. Because you know, someone can claim an asteroid, but who's going to enforce the claim like that? Who's going to be able to find that asteroid? Okay, okay, someone might be able to find that asteroid, but who's really going to be able to enforce that? You know what? That's actually a really interesting question. Uh, who owns what in space? Are we going to have a scramble for space? Who knows? Uh, the Chinese are trying to set up a, a moon base on the, the far side of the moon, the dark side. Because if you want to launch out into outer space, you want the best place to do it is from the part of the moon facing away from the Earth. Because then you can just launch straight outwards. It, it, I've, I've never really understood... And I know I'm going on a tangent here uh, that doesn't necessarily have much to do with uh, Indians, India's moon mission. But it, it's never really made sense to me because as a, as a young lad, when I'd watch documentaries and whatnot on how people were planning to get to space, uh, they, it, it was always, oh, we're going to we're going to launch into orbit. 
we're going to refuel in orbit, and then we're going to take this this 18-month voyage just to get to Mars. We're going to have this, this tiny little lander, and we expect that we're going to be able to build a self-sustaining colony by just stacking a bunch of these landers up? Like, no. No. No, 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 no. You don't colonize the new world one family at a time, especially if those people have to return when the mission's over. No, that that's that's just not how it's done. You need a colony ship. And the way you do, you need to be able to bring people to Mars or whatever other planet you're trying to colonize. You need to bring them. You, you need to be able to bring a lot of people in mass all at the same time and be able to sustain them long enough for them to become self-sustaining and you can you can get self-sustainability if you have enough people there to do the various tasks that need to be done you're not going to get that launching pod after pod after pod and oh we we'll just stack them up next to each other so eventually it builds this little grid of pods it's like okay well what happens next when do you get to building the actual cities well because you can only keep people cooked up in a, a habitat module for so long and it, it just the the plans that were you know the conventional idea of how we were going to colonize mars let alone some other faraway planet it, it just never made sense to me from uh, just from a common sense and the more you think about the logistics of that it, it makes even less sense and i've always viewed it as if you want to colonize space you have to start with the moon like why why don't we have a base on the moon because think about it, the, the moon has one-sixth of the Earth's gravity. So if you were to set up operations on the moon, and it's only a th with 1960s technology, it was a, th a three-day voyage, right? A three-day voyage. If anything goes wrong, you eject, you get back to Earth, and you, you have a good chance of still being alive when that pod lands. Because you can only survive, what, three days without water? Three-day journey? You have a little bit of water with you when you leave, you're good. You can actually survive an emergency uh, retreat from the moon back to Earth. The moon is the the safest place that we're going to we're going to set up anything in space that isn't even safer, I would say, than even low Earth orbit. Because, you know, it's an actual physical surface and you can't just you don't you're not just going to fall off and then oops, you're in space and now you're dead. My view is. If you want to colonize anywhere else, if you want to go anywhere, even just within the solar system, you have to start with the moon. Because if you can build up on the moon, now you, now you're cooking with fire. You don't want you don't want to be building these giant rockets on Earth, and then sending them wasting all because ninety percent of the rocket is just the tanks carrying the fuel, and then you have that the the nose cone essentially is the actual lander, or you have a a plane that's essentially bootstrapped to the back of a rocket that's the most inefficient ineffective way of going anywhere granted it it works just not to the degree that we want now if you were to be able to build or set or just assemble the parts of a rocket on the moon think about how that changes the equation you assemble the rockets on the moon then you fill you fuel it up on the moon then you lift off from the moon now you have this giant tank full of your rocket fuel 
or or what or heck you can probably even play around with the design really because it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be built to get through earth's atmosphere it can be built purely for the environment of space and so you can you can make really unwieldy designs that wouldn't fly well in the earth for two seconds but in the the near vacuum of space it could fly very well like the the type of things you'd see in any sci-fi movie where you have like large clunky machines but it, it works because there's no drag in space you could build actual spacecraft like we see in the movies if you were to assemble them on the moon because you're not constrained by you know the air here on earth and then when you lift off the moon's gravity is one sixth of what you have here on earth so you get more bang for your buck in terms of fuel and then you're, you're off and now you can accelerate for a greater distance without worrying about running out of fuel so you can get to where you're going faster theoretically and then you can come back and, and there's just not as much of a constraint with fuel and you can if you have the ship assembled on the moon you can have little you can like create a mothership right and then you can have lots of landers that you put on to the mothership then you can put a lot of people onto the mothership so then you send the mothership to the planet you're trying to colonize you put the mothership in orbit you send all the landers down and perhaps you have a fleet not just one mothership but a fleet of motherships and boom now you have a real colonization effort not not you're not going to colonize Mars one pod at a time. And we're certainly not going to get a moon base one pod at a time. Well, we might be able to get a moon base one pod at a time. It's uh, depending on how committed we are. But Mars, no. And certainly not Venus. You'll be crushed. You'll, you'll die. Maybe the moons of uh, Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune. But they're far away. And... Well, yes, it'd be really nice to have all that juicy oil on Saturn's moon Titan. We're never going to get there. We're, not, we're never even going to get to that point if we're still goofing around talking about, oh, we're just going to we're going to launch from the Earth and then we're going to go all these places that that might work with like, I don't know, zero gravity technology where you can just lift off, you know, like how they do in the movies with barely any fuel lift off and then you just fly out. When we have that level of technology, okay, okay, now we can contemplate these things. But we're not at that point, so it just doesn't make sense to me. That's my uh, my little rant. My gone rambling off of India making a, a moon mission, but it is interesting. I do love seeing missions into space. It's it's always nice to see the the smaller players on the scene take their shot at it. But uh, that's India sending a their Chandrayaan three lunar mission. We have Biden endorsing a two-state solution to the israel-palestine issue will anything become of this perhaps perhaps but then again when you introduce the chinese into these things and i believe the chinese are also in favor of a two-state solution xi jinping i think i believe said he was in favor of one as well but once you start introducing china into the thing and then you get people losing their minds in the united states and then real diplomacy gets shot in the foot because china so we'll see if something cooperative can actually be worked out between the two. Now, make no mistake, that is going to be the definition of stabbing Israel in the back. But uh, I'm not Israeli. <laughs> I'm not Israeli. Now, if the Chinese are the ones who have to broker the deal by themselves, well, shoot. Well, I guess that they had just had to do it by themselves. But at some point, 
the Israel-Palestine issue has to be resolved. You can't just leave it there. You need to leave it there, especially if you're going to be backing one side or the other. If you're going to be backing Israel, okay, well, all of it belongs to Israel, fuck Palestine. If you're going to back the Palestinians, okay, all of it belongs to Palestine, fuck Israel. Because you, you, what you can't do is have two countries where one country cuts through the other. So the other country, Palestine, is split into two separate parts, and then Israel gets to be a contiguous nation. No, no country can function that way. So you need two contiguous countries where, there, where there's no one whose border just cuts through the other one. You just two complete entities where everyone lives, where they need to live. Everyone has their sovereignty. Done deal. Right? Now, he said he's in favor of two-state solution. We'll see if he is a part of the solution on this issue or if due to political pressure, you know, the... The anti-China sentiment is strong. If due to political pressure, he backs out and decides to be part of the problem, which is trying to maintain the status quo because China. We can't let China do anything. So we'll see. Russia has deployed its new missile corvette, the Sikilon, to the Black Sea, which is a warship capable of firing Russia's Zircon hypersonic missiles. So this is essentially... I've, I've compared the introduction of hypersonic missiles on multiple occasions to the advent of explosive shells. And now here it is being used on a ship. And I'm not, I don't believe this is the first time a ship has carried a hypersonic missile. But, you know, since it's in the news and it's a big thing, we'll just treat it like it is and talk about it. Because hypersonics are unstoppable. They're unstoppable. You can only theoretically stop one if you have one, and nobody in NATO has one. So there's a, a problem instantaneously. So in effect, with this one ship, the Russians now have more offensive capability than vast swaths of the U.S. Navy. Especially if it can target any one of those ships. Because if it can target any one of those ships, it can wipe it out. And, and there's nothing that ship can do. Because if our ships fire cruise missiles... And this ship, this ship's air defense or whatever air defense systems from surrounding ships can perhaps fight fight off a good number of those missiles, right? Conventional warfare fight meeting conventional defense. But if it fires that hypersonic missile, there is literally nothing any ship in our navy can do about that. They have they actually just have to sit there and take the L and die, and then and then we watch as the whole thing goes down. Now imagine our our carrier battle groups going up against, uh, say, a, a small squadron of these ships, these Sikilon ships carrying these hypersonic missiles. That battle is going to be over in a number of minutes. N no one's going to see each other, right? Because they're going to the missiles are going to be fired from beyond the vision of the carrier battle group, and the airplanes and the missiles of the carrier battle group they're going to be fired from beyond the visible range of the cruisers or these uh corvettes excuse me our missiles might take down one or few you know our planes might go in take take a few pot shots but those missiles those hypersonic missiles will tear through our shit and one good hit is going to take down a carrier a, a giant super carrier 
with uh, structural integrity damage, at that point, the size of the carrier will start to work against it if it gets hit in the wrong place. Because it's so big and so heavy, carrying so many planes, it's going to be displacing a lot of water. So if you have a hole in the hole, all that weight pushing you down into the water is going to enable more water to get in. And now you have a problem. A single shot, if it doesn't wipe out the whole damn ship, to be completely frank with you, because you see what these missiles can do to a, they can turn a port into a dry dock. We saw that early on in the war with Ukraine, where they just took out a Ukrainian naval base with a single missile. What do you think happens if that same missile hits one of these big ass carriers, these giant targets floating on the sea? It's a wrap. It's a, we might not actually even be able to see the remains of our own ship. It, it would just be over lights out so this is a game changer and and i the reason i liken hypersonics to the explosive shells because if you remember during the crimean war for those of you who are history savvy you remember that the russians used explosive shells which was something that wasn't used that wasn't uh popular yet amongst navies they use explosive shells against the ottoman navy and you combine explosive shells with wooden ships because they're Everyone hadn't converted to ironclads yet. Certainly not the ironclads you would see in, say, the American Civil War. People were still experimenting with steamships. But wooden vessels plus explosive shells, you get a monster. If you are hit by those, it is a wrap. It's lights out. And you, you can also sell, you see what that did on the battlefield on the ground. Explosive shells and breech-loading artillery. It's a menace. It's a menace, and as of now, it is unstoppable. There is no stopping these hypersonics. So this one ship can do a lot of damage if it is armed with lots of anti-ship, lots of hypersonic missiles, and is accompanied by good air defense. And that's all it needs. So this is definitely a game changer, and I find it interesting that it's deployed to the Black Sea, which is the theater of combat as far as they are concerned so in the in the event that uh, this grain deal comes apart and the ukrainians decide that they want to try to attack russia navally this ship is there so the ukrainian navy really can't do much unless they want to die and nato the nato navies can't really do much unless they want to suffer the same fate this one ship is checkmate for the entirety of NATO Navy. Like, Grant, don't get me wrong, we can destroy the ship. I mean, it's not like the ship itself is invincible. Granted, I don't want to be in a situation where we're shooting at it, because that means we're at war with Russia. But that thing can take down a lot of our ships before we even get that chance. And that's, that's the, the game-changing thing about it. So you have Russia deploying this new ship there. You have the U.S. deploying more F-16s to the Persian Gulf uh, to escort oil tankers as uh, Iran has been sort of harassing them. The, the tanker wars have sort of been going on in the background as we've been harassing Iranian oil production, and then the Iranians harass us back. And, you know, no one really says anything about it. No one really says anything about it. If you remember when Lebanon had its uh, economic crisis when it first hit, the Iranians were sending oil via land and by sea, and the Israelis were just dogging those oil tankers in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the ocean. They were just bombing them out. 
So uh, the tanker wars continue, and we'll see if at some point this conflict blows up in our face and becomes a full-blown war. We'll see, but it's definitely, it's lingering in the background. It's it's not some sort of low-intensity conflict. Well, it is a low-intensity conflict, but it has much more potential to become a not low-intensity conflict, if you catch my meaning. And lastly, well, actually, no, not lastly. <laughs> I was going to get into Biden deploying the reservists, but before we get into him deploying the reservists to Europe, we have Mike Pence committing political suicide. I don't know if you saw that clip. I don't, I don't know. It was magnificent. From, from uh, you know, as a person who supports Donald Trump, you know, I don't support Mike Pence. That guy actually committed political suicide. And it's not even that I'm surprised that he's, I'm not surprised that he said it. I'm surprised that he said it out loud. That That's what shocked me. I couldn't believe my ears. And for those of you who, who don't know what he said, he said, he, he was taught, he was, uh, it was at a forum. He was being interviewed by Tucker Carlson. And he, along with a number of the other re- Republican candidates were being interviewed, I believe, Nikki Haley, and uh, one other, I swear, I cannot remember for the life of me, the Republican field, there's just so many irrelevance. Like, I've, I've got DeSantis down, I've, I've got Pence, right. I, I got Vivek, I don't know how I feel about Vivek, he seems like he's going to get me into a war, there's obviously Trump, there's, oh, Chris Christie, there we go, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, there we go. And there, there was uh, another one, a couple others. No, no, the cat's not gone. Yeah, but <laughs> oh, and Larry Elder's running, isn't he? Oh, but Tucker Carlson interviews uh, out of three, or was it five? Dang, uh, I'm just all over the place now. My mind is everywhere now, but. He was interviewing a number of Republican candidates, and when he gets around to Mike Pence, when he gets around to Mike Pence, uh, they have this conversation. They get to the point where they start talking about foreign policy, start talking about Ukraine, and Pence goes on a tangent about how we we said that we would give them these tanks, where we weren't giving them the tanks fast enough. We said that we'd give them to him by January. He said that if, if he was president, he'd gonna give them the tanks. He's gonna try to shore up things over there, and then. Tucker interludes, and he says, now, hold on now. Hold on now. Everything has gotten worse in America over the past few years. Drive around. Not a single city has gotten better. It's visible. So, and you're talking about sending Ukraine more American tanks. And then Tucker asks him point blank, where's the concern for America in that? Where's the concern for the United States in that? And this guy's response, <laughs> Pence's response is, that's not my concern. And I said, oh my goodness. I, I could believe it. I can believe it 100%. I just couldn't believe he said it out loud. That's not my concern. Woo. Tell us how you really feel. It, it, it says a lot. And at that point, I, I was sort of, reassured in my mind of what the true political division in the United States is. It's not left versus right. It's the American nation 
or versus the American Empire. Now, I myself am a staunch nationalist, but people who are not necessarily nationalists, but just like the United States and don't really care to be involved everywhere around the world, that's the American nation. People who are pro-America, the nation, versus the people who wants to be the, the leader of the free world, with the, the parent of democracy, the, the crusader for democracy. We have to be involved everywhere all the time. The, you know, the, the kinds of people who want us to be giving away hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine, who, who think that that's a good idea to be doing because Russia, yeah, that's people who are pro-empire. It's the American nation versus the American empire. And Biden choosing to send 3,000 reservists, that's the, the last thing I'm going to talk about here before we get into the meat of the episode, Biden deploys 3,000 reservists to Europe as a part of Operation Atlantic Resolve, which is an operation that started in 2014, following the Russian annexation of Crimea. And this is meant for us to be rotating US Army reservists in and out of Europe for training and end optics purposes of demonstrating our commitment to Europe. Now, why exactly we need to be committed to an entity that is not the United States is beyond me. And again, there is the dividing line. America the nation versus the American empire. We need to be committed to Europe. That's the empire. Because Europe ain't America. Taking care of Europe is not a, a particularly a priority, certainly among Americans. So why are we doing it? Why is our government prioritizing this? Because they are imperialist. And their priority is the preservation of the American empire, our influence around the world. Uh, all these things that do not matter. Our prestige. How does it, how, and you, you can, you remember back when uh, Afghanistan fell back into the hands of the Taliban and we and the immediate thing that came out of that all the analysts were like what does this say to our allies N not what does this say to the Americans who fought and died for 20 years well, not not what does this say to American families who sacrificed who lost somebody in this war or who now has to take care of somebody who got their leg blown off in this retarded war that we fought for 20 years for nothing for literally no reason at all they that wasn't even on, on the topic. That wasn't even on the agenda. It wasn't about America. It was about what does this say to our other allies, like Taiwan and NATO? What, what does this say to them? And, the, and that was a dead giveaway to me that they really do have completely different priorities. And we really do need the America first agenda, because otherwise these people will just let us bleed and die in faraway places so they can have maintain prestige amongst other countries. The prestige is more important than American lives. And that's unacceptable for, and that is an unacceptable position for any American politician to have. But that's the position that our current ruling class has that being involved is more important than your life. So Biden has deployed 3000 reservists to Europe as a part of this operation Atlantic resolve. Now, Granted, it has been going on since 2014. This is not necessarily something new. But the fact that it has popped up in the news as a, as a news story at all does indicate to me that there is a growing unwillingness on the part of Americans toward going to war. A very growing unwillingness that gets stronger by the day. People will sit there and say, I stand with Ukraine all day long, and they will simp for Ukraine on every on every platform you can find them on. But at the end of the day, 
No one's actually trying to fight this war. No one is actually going to go over there in uniform and fight for Ukraine. The, the people who were willing to do that, they left back in February and March of last year. And a lot of them have come back. <laughs> a lot of them have come back. And we'll, we'll talk briefly about that when we get into the meat of this episode. But America is not pro-war. And you would never believe that looking at the actions of the American government. The American government is overtly pro-war because it's it wants to maintain its influence, which is being challenged literally everywhere right now. And because they value their influence more than the value, the more than they value the lives of their own citizens, you get war, lots in war. But considering that the public's priority is to stay out of the war, and to stay out of wars in general, while the pol- the politicos prioritize commitment to Europe and a number of other places, but for right now it's Europe. At some point, and I feel it's not in the too distant future here. At some point, these two diametrically opposed sets of priorities will clash. They have to. They they just can't coexist perpetually. And it'll be very interesting to see how the imperialists respond when they lose. Because they're not winning that conflict. They won for 75 years. I'll give them that. They had a good run. A, a terrible run in my view. But, you know, they had a good run. But their time is up. And it's time for America first to become the ruling order of the day. But that's the rapid fire, the not so rapid fire news. And we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of this episode. So we have as our first story, we have Russian estimates on the status of Ukraine's military losses. Well, the status of Ukraine's military, but we're primarily focusing today on the, the losses, because that is, I believe, Really the more relevant part of this, although the condition of the army is also an important factor. But as far as we've seen, the Ukrainians are still willing to fight. So the condition of the army isn't necessarily a topic of priority. Because we know the Russians are just going to blast them apart no matter what they do. We know that the Ukrainians are losing equipment at unbelievable rates. And I believe the loss of equipment is the more important story because if you're losing equipment essentially you're losing your ability to fight in the first place because you can't just send masses of infantry up against a a well-armed foe like the russians who have this ridiculous superiority of artillery and in quantity of artillery it's insane but russia russia says now russia says now that 12,000 foreign mercenaries over the course of this year and a half that the war in Ukraine has been going on, Russia says that about 12,000 foreign mercenaries have served in Ukraine's armed forces from around 90 countries. So a lot of countries, perhaps they were volunteers, perhaps they were state-sponsored agents sent in as a sort of attache, sort of see what the front lines looked like in a truly modern war. Not just, oh, we're going to go on patrol in this desert country. We might see some resistance from the locals when they fire off a few pot shots at us and we'll we'll drop a bomb on their house for good measure. No, 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 not that modern war. Real war, where both sides are able to shoot at each other with modern weapons or semi-modern weapons, you know, and our, both sides are able to hit each other back, not one side dogging the other and unable to be touched. 
because the other side doesn't have the sufficient weapons to do so. No. So perhaps uh, given the number of countries who sent ball, these mercenaries, perhaps it was an attache, you know, to send men, send men in onto the fronts to see what war in the modern age would, would, would look like. And to those who did that, to those who sent in these attaches, the ones who lived, I'm sure they have gathered some incredibly valuable intelligence about how modern wars are fought. Uh, how modern wars are fought, excuse me. But 12,000 foreign mercenaries. Now, that's a very small proportion of the, the numbers of men that we've been dealing with here uh, in the, the fighting, and certainly when you look at the numbers of losses. But even still, Russia says that that number is now down to just 2,200, indicating that a lot of these people came and they've left. And I remember the stories about people leaving their families <laughs> to go fight for Ukraine. And then uh, some of them got stuck. <laughs> some of them got stuck in Ukraine. They, they got there, they tried to leave, and it's like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, no, no, comrade. You're, you're fighting the war. You're, go fight the Russians for the, the fatherland. <laughs> so, and there, there were a whole lot of crazy stories to come out of that. Uh, that the early phase of this war, I remember some, <laughs> some dude let in uh, uh, some Ukrainian refugees, and apparently it was a, a very fine woman. And uh, long story short, the, the very fine Ukrainian woman ends up pregnant and he <laughs> divorces his wife to be with the... <laughs> uh, no, I laugh, but it, it, was, it, mu it must have been a tragedy for them. Um, but you remember, uh, you remember that wave of people who were just signing up to go fight for Ukraine when this war began, which is where I'm sure the majority of this came from that combined with, you know, NATO sending in mercenaries, the Polish in particular being notorious uh, for, well, not notorious for sending mercenaries in, but most notable amongst the semi-combatant powers that are NATO in sending mercenaries and uh, essentially Polish troops in a different uniform to go fight this war. But now the Ukrainians are down by 10,000 mercenaries. Now, is most of that from casualties or is from that from them fleeing Ukraine? Now, that would be an interesting thing to look at, but either way, Ukraine's mercenary force is dwindling. And if it's being replenished, then they are certainly losing more men than they are getting in terms of these, these mercenaries. But that's not all Russia has to say about Ukraine's military. Because they say that Ukraine was losing nearly 20% of its armored vehicles in the first few weeks of Ukraine's uh, their counteroffensive. The later weeks, however, Russia saw that these rates of loss dropped down to just 10% of Ukraine's armored vehicles. So, while at first I thought, oh, so 10 plus 20, they, okay, Ukraine lost 30% of their armored vehicles. Uh, upon thinking about it for just uh, like a little bit longer, I don't think that that is necessarily how this went down. Uh, and I, I don't really, I think it's actually, you know, still close to like 20% and hear me out on this be, I believe it's more of a weighted average, like week, week by week or day by day, however you want to go. The period of time where they were losing 20% would, uh, and then you have the period of time where they were losing 10% and then 
how whichever one of those periods was longer that one that period of time would certainly be weighed more uh but 20 percent losses for like three days and then 10 percent losses for another three days you haven't lost 30 percent you you're essentially at an average that is somewhere between like 15 to 20 percent losses you've lowered the average but it's still going to be closer to 20 so something close to 20% of Ukraine's armored vehicles that they've used over the course of the entire offensive, even when the the loss rates fell off, somewhere between 15 to 20% of Ukraine's uh, armored vehicles have been destroyed throughout this counteroffensive. And uh, so that that's a that's my little insight there. Perhaps I'm right. Perhaps I'm I'm thinking about this completely wrong. But uh, I. Looking at it, I didn't think that 10 plus 20 equaled 30. <laughs> I'm like, wait, now, wait, now, hold on a second. If the loss rates fell off, then how can you add 10 to 20%? Now, now just give me one second here. But, but yeah, while this latest bit of info doesn't really come with any hard numbers, which is the, the, the problem that I had with seeing, oh, they lost 20% of their armor over a period of time, and uh, they don't specify the period of time either, and then it drops down to 10%. Considering we don't know what, <laughs> when they were losing the 20%, and then when the 20% drops down to 10%, and since we don't know if the drop-off was immediate or if it was gradual, like we can assume it was probably gradual. Uh, it goes 20, then down to 18, then down to 15, then 12, you know, 10. It was probably gradual, but cons- we, we just don't have the information. We really, we we really just don't. So if we just assume it's, if we just assume it's twenty one week, twenty another week, and then boom, it's down to ten. That's really the best we can do, given what we have. But while it doesn't specify the periods of time when these specific sets of losses were taking place, and it doesn't specify the specific number that these percentages represent, like how many. How many armored vehicles is 20% losses? Is that five? Is that 10? Is it, is it one? Is it none? How many is that? It doesn't specify, but I think we have sufficient numbers from the past to work backwards from. Uh, because if we assume, if we assume, and I'm going to need you to just run with me on this because I think I'm onto something here. I think we can extrapolate the number of vehicles if we combine this information, this 20% losses in the first few weeks, and then 10% losses in the later weeks of the offensive. If we extrapolate that and combine it with the information we got from that Russian Security Council meeting a few weeks back, oh, back uh, like on, on week two of the counteroffensive, when the Russian Security Council met and they started dishing out those, those numbers and we talked about them, I think if we combine this information with that information we got back then, I believe we have something to work with here. I do believe we do. Because if we assume, and uh, here's here's where we get to the assumptions, but you know, you work with me. If we assume that the period where Ukraine was suffering the 20% losses of their armored vehicles, and if we assume that roughly overlapped with the two weeks of the Ukrainian offensive that preceded this meeting of the Russian Security Council, because Ukraine 
their offensive really fell off after the second week, which is something that I observe, uh, especially with the losses of men. If we assume that the the twenty percent losses overlapped with that two week period when the offensive first began, and then it was ten percent from every week on after that, then we can we can we have something to work with here. We have something to work with here. So that would essentially mean that the 600 Ukrainian armored vehicles that the Security Council had essentially agreed were destroyed or damaged, 600 armored vehicles after the second week of the offensive essentially concluded, 600 Ukrainian armored vehicles would represent this 20% rate of loss spread out over a two-week period of time. So that means, uh, so to simplify, that's the 20% losses over two weeks equals 300, no, not 300, equals 600 armored vehicles destroyed. So if we shorten that down to one week, with, still with 20% losses, then that means 20% losses over one week was 300 armored vehicles destroyed. So then you break that down further, uh, you get an average of 42 armored vehicles lost a day. If we, if we assume that these two bits of information overlap with one another, which we can, or we can just be completely wrong, but you know, it's, I'm all over the numbers. I like the numbers. It really paints a solid picture, especially when we're given such vague information, but that's bad to say the least, but that that's a 20% losses, which means, you know, with 20% losses, they're losing 42 to 43 armored vehicles a day. That's terrible. Especially when you consider how much we were hyping up, giving them 31 Abrams tanks. Now, these aren't tanks being destroyed. These are armored vehicles. But, you know, just to give you an idea of the, the quantities of these vehicles we were hyping up as, oh, this is a big deal. And they're losing 42 to 43 a day in the first two weeks of the offensive. Now, if we cut it down to 10%, then that we just we can just cut it in half. 21 of these armored vehicles lost a day is what has been the average for Ukraine starting somewhere in week three of the offensive. Still losing around 21 armored vehicles a day as a sort of average. And we'll, we'll say it's a weekly average. So some days it's like, it's a lot lower. And then some days it, it's back up to like 30 for some, you know, a weekly average, you know, but needless to say, no matter how you slice that, that's still terrible. That's bad. Especially considering that Ukraine is not making these, these armored vehicles, they're either coming out of warehouses from the Soviet era, or they're being imported from NATO. Neither of those are, is an unlimited supply because you're not producing anything. Ukraine is going to run out of armored vehicles at some point that they're just going to run out. There's not going to be anything left for them to have. And, and when I say run out, uh, perhaps they won't have zero, but if they have like 20 Bradleys left when this is over, who in their right mind is going to say that is an operational force of armored vehicles? No. If they have like 50 tanks left when the war is over, who's going to say that is an operational force of tanks? No. So none is you know, really, really, really low. Not necessarily zero, but really, really low. They're going to run out. At these rates of loss, they are going to run out by the time this, uh, no, 
Well, shoot. I could say by the time the offensive is over, but I think that that would be shooting the gun. That, that would be jumping the gun, not shooting the gun. But this is bad. This is really bad for Ukraine. And every time we get every time we get the hard numbers, it's really bad for Ukraine. It's it's never good. I've noticed that, that it's never good. Uh, they like they have good moments, you know. They do have their moments, but the broad picture is never a good one for the Ukrainians. But you might say, okay, well, these are what the Russians are saying. That it's clearly a bias, and I have to agree, and I I admit I am being very heavily reliant on these Russian numbers. But my the reason why I lean so heavily on these Russian numbers is one, they're really all we've got. The Ukrainians don't like publishing numbers, uh, certainly not believable num- not not believable numbers. Like if they were believable, we we could say okay, let's compare and contrast. But they really don't like publishing numbers. The Russians do, and surprisingly. So one, they're idling on the Russian numbers because they're really all we've got. Unless you want to believe what the Pentagon is saying, <laughs> where the Russians have lost uh, uh, three, four, five hundred thousand men. That they've lost two hundred thousand since uh, the, the Battle of Bakhmut alone, and it's like okay. <laughs> uh, we we can listen to the Lloyd Austin, John Kirby, and who who was the who was the third guy? Was it was it Blinken? Was it Blinken? Tell me it was Blinken. So I can I can rag on him again when when all three of them at different points. No, it was Millie, Austin, Millie, and I think I think it was Kirby. I think we'll have to give Blinken the pass on this one. Austin, Millie, and John Kirby, all saying Russia has lost strategically, militarily, and economically. The war is over, except it continues, and they gain ground every day. Yeah. Uh, we could we could trust them, you know. We could we could go with the their, their numbers, or we could see that they don't know what they're talking about, and look elsewhere for the truth. So one, I go off the Russian numbers because they're all we've got, and two, the way in which the Russians get that info is by intercepting Ukrainian communications, or at least that's what they said when again when that Russian Security Council meeting uh, was held. Because when they they all gave out their estimates for Ukrainian losses and they were putting it at thirteen to fifteen thousand after week two of the offensive, they said that they got that info by intercepting Ukrainian communications. So whenever like a, a Ukrainian platoon or a squad or a division would report their losses, they would send that to their their headquarters. And if you can collect enough of that those uh those comms over the course of uh. A period of time you can get a, a pretty good picture of how much ukraine has lost within a certain time frame and that's what the russians claim they've done which implies a a pretty wide-ranging penetration of ukrainian communications but if that is true and again that's the if if that is true then the numbers that the russians are giving us are not just russian numbers they are the Ukrainian numbers because they're taken from the Ukrainians telling their commanders how much they've lost. So if true, these are actually Ukraine's numbers that Ukraine just doesn't want to tell us that they've lost. So that's why I lean so heavily on what the Russians are giving us. That and the Russians have, 
have established a very interesting habit throughout this war of telling us the truth. It's very interesting to compare and contrast them with our own government, who claims that the Russians are the liars. It's it's been jarring at first, and but now I'm just happy to have them because it gives me uh, factual things to talk about on the podcast. You know, I, I appreciate trustworthy news wherever I can get it. I just never thought I'd get it from the Russian government. Uh, Russia, meanwhile, while all this has gone on, has been on their own offensive, making gains near the city of Liman, Avdeevka, and Kupiansk, and a number of others, but they're sort of farther away from those others. And Avdeevka is nearing an encirclement. Now, whether they choose to go for the full encirclement or if they go for the cauldron approach like they did with Bakhmut remains to be seen. I will leave the battlefield tactics to the Russian military. I'm not even going to predict that. I'm, I'm just not going to do it. I've learned my lesson. But they've been on their own offensive in the northern part of the, the front line. So, well, we, I, I say northern, but if you look at the shape of the front line, the, the whole the whole front line for Russia is north. But so really we're looking at the, the easternmost portion of the front, uh, sort of further east than where the Ukrainians were making their major offensive in the Zaporizhia region. So in the... In the Donbass is where the Russians have been attacking and making ground. And the fact that they're doing this at the same time the Ukrainians are sort of petering out, it's just as I figured would happen. Back when we were still waiting for Ukraine's great counteroffensive to begin, uh, I said that the end of Ukraine's counteroffensive would see them having depleted their reserves of equipment and manpower, which would open the door to what I called the Russian backbreaker offensive. And we might be seeing the early parts of that offensive right now. Granted, the Russians have been on the move the entire time. They never really stopped. It's just we focused on Ukraine for this period of time. But it seems that the Russians are going to start picking up the pace, Uh, especially when you consider how content they've been with static warfare this entire time just sitting back behind their lines and beating the Ukrainians mercilessly with their savage amounts of artillery. And speaking of artillery, the Alexander of the Duran says that Ukraine was able to start firing up to like 25,000 shells in, in the early parts of this offensive, which means that those, those massive injections of artillery shells that we were talking about uh, prior to the offensive, those made it through. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the episode. But with the Russians on the move now, and Ukraine having weakened itself, and thrown away its, its really large reserves of equipment, because if you look at these losses, 600 armored vehicles, that's not something small. 300 tanks is nothing small. And that was on week two, when the Russian Security Council meeting had, was held. We're probably looking at around seven to eight hundred armored vehicles by now, or somewhere approaching five hundred tanks. Like these are terrible losses for Ukraine, and with the Ukrainians having thrown away their military equipment like this, how are they going to defend themselves when the Russians go on the attack? Especially since the Russian air force is increasingly more active and playing a more active role in the war because they they use those that missile bombardment campaign that they started in october to whittle down and whittle away at ukraine's air defenses 
how are they going to defend themselves with no armored vehicles, with no tanks, with less artillery than they had to begin with, and they were already in a losing war with the artillery because they, they lost like 30-something uh, uh, odd artillery pieces in the fighting. How you managed to... Well, actually, no, I won't even bother asking that question. The second you fire the artillery off, if you don't move it fast enough, it's going to get hit with the enemy's artillery. And if the Russians have a have a chronic advantage in artillery and the Ukrainians have a chronic disadvantage in artillery, well, it, the second you fire off at one Russian artillery to silence the guns so that your men can move, you, you probably have like one to two Russian artillery pieces pointed at you now. And since the Russians have whittled away Ukraine's air defenses, that means drones and helicopters can operate in the skies, surveying the ground to do targeting operations for pinpoint accuracy of the artillery. So I can actually see exactly how they would lose so many artillery pieces, which are really far back from the front lines. Really far back from the front lines. So if they're losing all this equipment, how are they going to be able to defend themselves later on? when the Russians start moving. Because Ukraine ha is better on defense than on offense. The Russians are good on offense, but we saw with Bakhmut how well the Ukrainians can hold out if you give them a good defensive position. But if you strip them of the military equipment they need f to do that, well, what's left? What happens when the Russians get past the Kalyanivka River? It's a wrap. That's what it is. It is a wrap. I think we are witnessing the beginning of the Russian backbreaker offensive. Only time will tell how all this is going to manifest. But with Ukraine having lost the Battle of Bakhmut and lost 80 to 100,000 men in one battle, uh, and with Ukraine having lost its great summer offensive, I think we can say uh, now that they have lost... We'll we'll give it a month, but I'm gonna I'm I'm calling it now that they've lost, I'm calling it now. It's it's already been a month and a half since it started, so I think it's safe to say they've lost. And they lost these two battles while suffering terrible losses of men, uh, nearly a hundred thousand in Bakhmut alone, a hundred thousand casualties in Bakhmut alone, nearly half dead. And all this equipment that they've lost in this uh, this counteroffensive. Hundreds of tanks, hundreds of armored vehicles, dozens of artillery pieces. How do you, you, you don't come back from that, especially not without an industrial base to produce it. You don't come back from that. And it's, it's clear to me that this war has turned decisively in Russia's favor. And now we just wait to see how that favor is used and it's not going to be good for ukraine it really ain't but now let, let's get into the nato summit meeting the nato summit meeting uh, last week the north atlantic treaty organization held a summit in vilnius the capital of lithuania in eastern europe now among many of my sources, before I get into the, the, the main takeaways of this, among many of my sources, and I do mean many, uh, a lot, there was this incredible hype built up 
uh, this this summit was treated as the deadline by which Ukraine had to show some results in exchange for all the weapons and money that NATO, but really the United States, but NATO had given them. Now, as you've probably figured by me just now bringing up this summit after it happened, I did not see there being much to this meeting by itself. It was more of a what's 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 the takeaways and i knew that i would have to extrapolate them because the west ain't what it used to be unfortunately so it was more of a wait and see thing for me because the g7 summit flop the 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 democ the great democracy summit if you you remember that incredibly cringe thing that biden did we had all the the leaders of democracies uh on on a video call that was a flop uh the AUKUS deal flop we're going to build the quad flop. It's just, it's one flop after the next. <laughs> We're going to sanction Russia. That was a flop. Uh, We're going to, y'all, I tell you, we're going to put a price cap on Russian oil flop. Like I've just lost so much faith in the ability of these people to institute any kind of sound policy that has any effectiveness at all. I've, I've just lost so much. I, I didn't believe that anything too meaningful would come out of this. I knew something would. I knew something would. I just, it was a wait and see thing because I couldn't really tell you myself. So I just sat back and let it happen. <laughs> but there was a, a lot of hype surrounding this. Uh, as Na- And you would hear people say, oh, Ukraine has to achieve some kind of victory for at least the, the the PR win, so the the media, the propaganda press here can spin it into some great victory. Now, I because because I did not share in that hype, and I was sort of in the, the wait and see mode. Uh, I viewed this meeting from the standpoint of unless NATO was going to pull the plug and cut Ukraine off entirely, if it didn't achieve something worthwhile you know, at least from a media standpoint, because you know how the propaganda press loves its fake victories. But unless it did, unless they were willing to cut it off entirely from money and weapons, then there would have been no consequences to Ukraine achieving nothing at all. That was how I viewed it. And now with the summit over, we can say definitively that there were in fact no consequences for Ukraine's consistent failure to achieve any strategic aim in this war. Now, there were clips of Zelensky getting really upset when it started to sink in that he was, in fact, not going to be led into NATO and that he's just been being led on this entire time with NATO membership. And because imagine you've been asking for NATO membership for eight years. Suddenly you're at war with Russia, the very entity that NATO's meant to fight. All of NATO is giving you money, weapons, equipment and all the, the, the favorable press coverage that money can buy. And then they invite you to their summit. And you think this is it. This is the moment that my that I've been waiting for. Finally, I'm saved. Finally, I can survive in some sort of exile as president, even if we lose the war, because it's NATO. Even if they don't, and I'm a NATO member now. Or perhaps we'll, if we become a NATO member, we can get the mighty United States to come in and fight the war for us. Because 
let, let's be honest. Nobody in NATO is depending on the other NATO militaries to come save them. They're depending on the United States. It's a scam for us. But imagine that. You've been waiting for this for eight years. You finally get invited to the summit during this moment where you are fighting NATO's biggest uh, enemy. And they give you the cold shoulder. There was that, that terrible... I, I almost said terrible in, in line with my uh, my sources, but really, uh, I, I didn't necessarily view it as terrible. I viewed it as hilarious. Because the, the, there's no way you invite this guy to your summit after giving him all the press coverage in the world. They, they treated him like a darling. And then when they have him in this summit, you have that picture where he's just standing by himself and everyone else is just shaking hands and high-fiving each other. And it's 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 hilarious. It's hilarious that that situation even abounded, but there's no way you invite this guy just to leave him out in the cold like that. I found that absolutely hilarious. It was very comedic, but uh, what was NATO going to do? You you went through all this trouble to get into NATO. Here's the big moment, and then they tell you, be grateful for what you've gotten. Now, granted... We here, you know, we, the public, are not allowed to tell the Ukrainians, be grateful for what you've got, now leave us alone. We're not allowed to say that. We're, we're constantly fleeced for more money and weapons and more support for Ukraine. But here these people are, the, the, the poster children for beggars, to, uh, the poster children for donation drives, because the massive donation drive given to Ukraine a lot of it gets laundered back, but let's not pretend that none of it makes it to Ukraine. A good portion of the, all that stuff does make it to Ukraine. And these people who went through all the trouble of beating us over the head for not standing with Ukraine are not standing with Ukraine. You don't get NATO membership. Suck it up. Now go back and fight the Russians. That's essentially what they told them. That's, that's, uh, that is all you need to know that that's what they told me. there was over if i could break down the multiple days worth of actual hours of footage of this summit because it was over two days and there was a lot but if i could break it down into its most important parts ukraine is not going to be led into nato and that's that's the kicker they're not going to be led into nato but you, but NATO is going to continue giving money and weapons to Ukraine, like we could have guessed, based on how this has gone this entire time. It's both, um, it's both an important detail to know, as well as uh, so predictable that it's almost not important. Because if Ukraine's at war, you can't admit a country that's at war into NATO, unless you break you break the tradition, which these people weren't necessarily above doing, but. They chose to stick with the tradition. And it's not like they were going to cut Ukraine off. So, again, nothing has changed. L- literally nothing has changed. We're, we're going to keep giving money and weapons to Ukraine, and Ukraine's going to continue to not be a part of NATO. And that's it. So it's... I don't know if I should call it a nothing burger. I, I don't know if I should. I, I don't think that'd be appropriate. But literally nothing has changed. I think the affirmation that nothing has changed is the biggest the, the biggest detail to come out of this. But 
uh, gee, I almost feel like calling it a nothing burger now that I'm now that I'm talking about it. But it's it, it was predictable. It was predictable. I could have seen it coming a mile away. I really could have. But yeah, unless they were going to cut Ukraine off completely, then, then there was no consequences whatsoever for them not achieving any strategic aims. Like let's let's run through the list of all the strategic aims that Ukraine has not gotten. Let, let's go through this, the list of Ukraine's failures over the course of this war. We, 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 we won't even get into the acts of terrorism or nuclear terrorism. We'll, we're just going to look at the war. Just going to look at the war. Russia still occupies 20% of Ukraine's territory. Ukraine lost the Battle of Bakhmut, the most well-defended city we've seen so far in this war. And they lost nearly 100,000 men doing so. They didn't destroy or take out of commission the Kerch Strait Bridge. Uh, I said we weren't going to mention the terrorism, but I feel like that was a that was an actual strategic move. So, you know, we'll, we'll just say that there was the Ukrainian government called it. <laughs> they tried and failed to take out the Kerch Strait Bridge, which would have severed Russia's uh, tie to Crimea via mainland Russia, not with the, the territory they've taken from Ukraine. They failed to destroy the bridge. They failed to take it out of commission. Not, not even just destroy it, take it out of commission. They failed to do that. They haven't retaken Crimea like they were all hyped up to do when we were talking about the offensive before it began, back when we were still calling it the spring offensive and they were making their plans, drawing lines on the map. They haven't, taken, they haven't retaken Crimea. They haven't retaken any of the oblasts that Russia has taken from them. Ukraine is in danger of having of not even having a foothold in the Donbass anymore. We talked about how Russians have been pushing them out of the Donbass, even as the Ukrainians were attacking uh, with this counteroffensive. They've barely bled the Russians over the course of the entire war. Barely bled them. BBC puts Russian losses at around 24,000 normal fatalities and those are just counting deaths normal fatalities in war the russians say are 25 percent so if 24,000 is is in line with that 24 percent fatality rate well that means the russians are at most somewhere around 100,000 casualties in total with only 24,000 of those dead while ukraine is pushing half a million to three quarters of a million depending on whose numbers you want to take. They haven't bled the Russians. They objectively just have not. And what they got, again, the, the, the few tens of thousands to 100,000 potential losses for the Russians, what the Ukrainians got came out a massive loss to themselves. Again, half a million to three quarters of a million and counting, depending on whose numbers you want to take. And, of course, their long-awaited and long-anticipated and very much hyped-up counteroffensive that they've been belt-fed more equipment to carry out. They got a massive injection of artillery and artillery shells and, and armored vehicles and tanks to carry out this offensive, and they blew it away in, in days with almost nothing to show for it. They've gone, it's gone nowhere. And it's certainly nowhere good for Ukraine. 
it, hundreds of tanks, hundreds of armored vehicles, dozens of artillery pieces, and as of now, 20k plus additional casualties. Some people put the number as high as 25,000. I'll just lowball it to 20,000 because they were at they were at they were pushing 15,000 on week two. 15,000 casualties. We're a month and a half into this thing. 20,000 is a conservative estimate. That's that's what they've gotten in exchange for all the money and all the weapons and all the equipment and all the aid that we've given. All this and they haven't not a single Ukrainian soldier has they 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 have yet to come within eye shot of that first line of Russian heavy fortifications. They haven't broken through the Russian front line to get to the defensive lines because the defensive lines are in the back. Ukraine hasn't even seen them yet. And the Russians have three of them. So looking at all of the failures of Ukraine's military, uh, unless NATO was willing to cut them off entirely, there were going to be no consequences for Ukraine not achieving anything. And yet, despite all of that, again, all those losses, all those failures, ab- abject failures, yet despite all that, NATO has, again, reaffirmed that it's business as usual. We're going to continue giving you money and weapons and equipment, and Ukraine is going to continue fighting Russia. The problem, however, is that the, the vaunted West, the vaunted West, has nothing left to give. We'll get into that in a minute as well. Uh, I like how all these segments are just flowing into each other quite nicely. But the the West has nothing left to give. NATO has nothing left. Why? Because the United States has nothing left. It's a, let's just be completely frank. Let's keep it one buck and fifty. It's just us. It's just us. Uh, we ain't got nothing left to give. And we'll talk about that. We're all out. And Ukraine's out. If we're out of, of weapons and Ukraine is blowing what we gave them in a matter of days, the second Ukraine runs out, if we have nothing left to give, then both of us are out. Both of us are ass out in the wind. And that's where the Ukrainians are about to be. And the Russians are going to be standing there with their artillery, fully content to just fire away on you. And that's what's going to happen. It's going to be a slaughter. Ukraine is, uh, excuse my French, but they're fucked. They're fucked. They might just be even more fucked now than they were uh, last year. When they, they might be more fucked than they were when the Russians came in and they said no to that peace treaty. It's, I, I don't I don't know what to say. They've lost so much. They are uh, I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know what McGregor's new casualty figure is. What Scott Ritter's new casualty figure is, what RFK what his casualty figure is cuz either they're all listening to each other or they're getting info from uh, different sources that are giving them the same number. And if that's the second case, oh my goodness. Because their casualty estimates are routinely ahead of mine. 
routinely. Like, you, you know me. I'm behind by, a, at first it was just by 100,000 losses. Now I'm behind by multiple 100,000 casualties. I don't want to know what the new estimate is. I don't want to know. I'm still at the, they're somewhere between 400 to 500,000 losses. They're, they're, those those folks, they said 300 to 350,000 dead. And since the deaths are half the losses, that means 700 to 750. Well, that means 600 to 700,000 losses. Ukraine is pushing three quarters of a million losses. And who is left to fight the war? They're, they're dragging men off the street to go fight the war. Millions of Ukrainians have left. And millions more will leave when the front line collapses. And they just can't establish a defensive line again. When they just run out. They just don't have the men to man the line in a strong enough way. Like, sure, you can... You can technically have a front line where every man is covering 50 miles or every man is co- covering 25 miles. But what is that really a front line or it, on paper or is that a front line in reality? It's a front line on paper. They can have a front line. They can mount some resistance across the board. But we're going to get to a point where that resistance is quite literally futile with the rates of loss that Ukraine is suffering. And NATO is out of weapons. And that might be the biggest thing to come out of this summit, which is the admissions of weakness by NATO member states, which is that they have nothing left to give. That they're going to continue. And that's sort of the, the paradox here. We're going to continue giving you aid and military equipment. But you look at the, the numbers, it's just, it's just falling off a cliff now. It, this offensive wasn't just Ukraine's Hail Mary. It was NATO's Hail Mary because NATO funded and armed, NATO supplied this offensive. It was NATO's Hail Mary, and now NATO has not. They can't. They're going to give them whatever scraps they have left to give the Ukrainians. So they will continue giving them, and they'll continue giving them money. But in terms of actual equipment that the Ukrainians can use, they're tapped dry. NATO is tapped dry. The United States is damn near tapped dry. So now that we just wait for the the bitter end. Because Ukraine's going to fight to the bitter end. Ukraine's not going to be allowed to make peace. No, that's another sort of implied takeaway from this summit. Ukraine's not allowed to make peace with Russia. So what's happened with this summit, and I think that this, this might actually definitively be the biggest takeaway from the NATO summit, is that Ukraine, on top of not being given NATO membership, on top of not being given a, uh, a pathway to NATO membership, Ukraine is expected to continue fighting Russia. Which means that the biggest thing to come out of this summit is that we have not guaranteed the security of Ukraine. We have instead guaranteed its destruction through a continuous war with Russia. This this very overhyped summit meeting, and even more overhyped alliance, it has it's ended just as anticlimactically as I have come to expect. 
And honestly, I could probably sum up this entire meeting in just three words and save everyone the trouble. Just three words. Impotent, ineffectual, and inconsequential. That's what NATO is. And honestly, I can't wait to be rid of it. Good riddance. I mean, what has NATO gotten us? What has NATO gotten us other than a war that we can't win, that we pretend that we can win, and by pretending that we can win it, and pretending that we can fight the Russians, and that we can use Ukraine to destroy Russia and dismantle Russia, break it up into a million different pieces, and have our, our uh, another unipolar moment where we can then turn our sights onto China and then do the same to China, and then we'll be the undisputed superpower for the, the rest of eternity. If... <laughs> yeah, I guess saying that out loud makes it even crazier than it, it sounds in my head when I think about how crazy these people are for believing this nonsense. But what has NATO gotten us other than trouble? It's gotten us nothing. And when we look at this war in Ukraine in particular, the trouble it's gotten us is that we've run out of weapons. We, us, we are out. We're all out. There's nothing left for sale. Uh, granted, we, we weren't selling anything to begin with, unfortunately. Now every piece of equipment that has to be replaced with either the same thing or something new has to be replaced on the taxpayer's dime because nobody had... Nobody had the foresight. Nobody had the. Nobody. Nobody had enough scruples to say, hmm, maybe we should make the Ukrainians pay for the equipment that we're giving them, so that we we can afford the replacements without fleecing the American population for even more money. But no, no, that wasn't on the agenda. And now, here we are. We're out. There's nothing left to give. There's nothing left to give. Like. A few, I say a few, it's really a few days ago, but I almost said a few weeks ago. When it came out that we were giving cluster munitions to Ukraine, which is a literal war crime because they're indiscriminate, indiscriminate bombs. A lot of them are duds, so they end up sitting there and going off when someone touches them. It's what it's usually civilians who suffer the most from the use of cluster munitions, not the militaries. We're providing Ukraine with cluster munitions now. As if depleted uranium wasn't bad enough, we're supplying them with cluster munitions now. As if using our military intelligence for literal state-backed terrorism, I thought we were at war with terrorism. I thought, I thought we were fighting a war, the war on terror. But here we are with Ukraine supporting Nazis, terrorists, nuclear terrorists. It it just never ends. It just never the insanity, just never ends. It really does. And not only are we backing Nazis, who are terrorists, nuclear terrorists, who also were also backing them by committing war crimes of giving them depleted uranium shells and cluster bombs. It, it just never ends. But get this, the reason we're giving them these cluster bombs, which perhaps is even worse, it's, it's even worse to know the reason, it's, but I'll, I'll get... 
here's the reason. Because Biden, in a CNN interview, uh, he admits that the U.S. is low on 155-millimeter artillery shells. He admits that in the interview. And in, in, a, in a passing comment when he was walking by a reporter who asked him, why are you giving cluster bombs to Ukraine? He said, we're, we're low on our toe. We're getting low. And he, he says the reason for us supplying Ukraine with cluster munitions, uh, and he accuses Russia of using cluster bombs first, which is a complete non-argument. Why are you the supposed leader of the free world committing a war crime? Oh, it's because we're running low on 155 millimeter artillery shots. Knowing the reason why we're doing it somehow makes it worse. How, how does it make it worse? Because we've hit rock bottom and we're still going. That, that's, that's the first thing to notice. We're low on artillery shells, so we're going to start giving them cluster bombs as if that was better. We're, we ran low on artillery shells, so our only option in the eyes of these people is to just commit a war crime. And give them cluster bombs. Oh, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> that that's your plan. That's your strategy. So that that's the the first thing that makes it worse. But the second thing, the second part about knowing the reason why makes this makes the decision even worse is because think about what that means. We ran out of artillery shells, and instead of saying, "Look, we have nothing left to give Ukraine." It's time to end this. We're going to stop. We're going to, we didn't stop. We ran out of artillery shells. And then these people decide that they would rather give them cluster bombs than to stop giving them weapons. When they've run out, they literally ran out of our weapons. These are our weapons. These are our artillery shells. What they blew through giving all of it to Ukraine they spent it all on nothing just for them to still lose the war they gave away our weapons that are supposed to be used by our military for our nation's defense in the event that our nation has to fight a war they gave all of that away and it still wasn't enough for them now they want to give away some other piece of our stockpile of weapons and they're going to commit a war crime in the process. That's like that's like me emptying out your bank account, uh, emptying out your your checking account, right? And after I spent all of your money, I then went and started emptying out your savings account and your retirement account and your 401 and your investing account and your 401k. Th that's the equivalent of what they've chosen to do here. Oh no. We, we've emptied out your bank, your, your savings account, so now we have to access your social security and use the money there. No, no, stop. Leave it alone. Leave it the fuck alone. It's not yours. This isn't, some, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing with that. But they would rather do that than to simply say it's time to stop. They would rather commit a war crime than to say, all right, it's time, it's time to talk with the Russians. And Scott Ritter brings it up uh, on numerous occasions. What happens after the war? What happens after the war? Because there's still going to be a Russia on the other side of this. 
how are you going to interact with Russia after the war if you're all in on Russia's destruction? The, these let, Let's pretend that climate change is a, is a key issue that everyone needs to be working together on. How are you going to work with the Russians on climate change if you were two seconds ago all in on the destruction of the Russian state? And the, the, the murder of the Russian people by way of literal Nazis in Ukraine. Weaponizing Russia's neighbor against it. And you funded and armed those people to the bitter end and the Russians had to march all the way to Lviv to put it down. How do you speak to them after that? You don't. You can't. W what's there to say? Now you're going to have this militarized, very well-armed Russia just chilling out in Eastern Europe who can do whatever the fuck it wants with impunity. You can't stop that. You gave away all your weapons to Ukraine. And a lot of it's already ended up in Russian hands. And a lot more of it's going to end up in Russian hands when the war is over. It's going to be just like Afghanistan, where you see the rows upon rows upon rows of equipment left behind. Captured by the very people that that equipment was supposed to be fine. We're out. We're all out. And this this is the result of deindustrialization. We can't produce artillery shells anymore. And and when I say that I don't mean that we're producing zero. I mean that we're producing not even a day's worth of artillery. Uh, I mentioned earlier on that Alexander of the Duran he noted that uh, uh, there was a brief yet very substantial increase in Ukraine's artillery fire, uh, their their rate of fire when the offensive began. Uh, this, of course, following the necessary injection of artillery shells, which was provided largely by the United States. Ukraine was able to, for a few weeks, get their fire rate up to the twenty to 25,000 shells a day range, which is a massive increase from what they were at down in the depths in March, when that leaked Pentagon document came out, and we saw they had 10,000 rounds barely in stock, and they were firing 1,000 a day. I think that was the worst moment in Ukraine's uh, war effort. They got a massive injection of shells and artillery for this offensive, and for the opening days, they were able to pump it up to twenty to 25,000. They were able to be competitive with the Russians, or, well... Competitive with what the Russians had last summer, because the Russians have been at a consistent twenty to forty thousand throughout the course of this war, and of course they bumped it up to the forty to fifty thousand range when the Ukrainians began their offensive, which is part of the reason why it's gone nowhere. The Russians just have them outgunned chronically. There's nothing Ukraine can do about it, and because their supply of shells is so limited and so finite. And the Russians are actually producing shells. The Russians can afford this. The Ukrainians can't. And Alexander, even having noted that very large increase, he believes that the Ukrainian fire rate has now, as of now, fallen back down to the six to nine thousand shells a day range. So essentially, it's fallen back to what it was around the beginning of this year, uh, January, February. Obviously, not, not March. Ooh, not March. Uh, that's not good. 
that is a massive fall off that that's a fall off worse than when ukraine took its first nosedive in terms of its fire rate it, that, that's a terrible fall off to go from 20 to 25,000 shells a day to less than 10,000 a day we saw this fall off over the course of march or at the very least the information leaked out to us uh or in a way that it looked like they were just losing their fire rate week by week and down eventually came down to a thousand a day they might end up back down at a thousand a day at this rate with nothing to show for it interestingly enough the legitimacy a ukrainian publication legitimacy published an article saying that general valeri zeluzhny who has who's back on the scene apparently uh, after a, a pretty nice hiatus he he has apparently allegedly told zelensky that ukraine can only sustain offensive operations for 200 days because after which and this is zeluzhny saying this after which ukraine will run out of ammunition and if ukraine is if their their fire rate of artillery is uh on par with what alexander is putting up here and that fall off is there and continues this illusion might just be right especially when you consider that there's there's nothing left for the the united states nato but united states nothing left there's nothing left for us to give there's no more injections coming we don't have there, there's nowhere else for us to tap for these arti- there's no other um reservoirs or artillery that we can tap we've we've gone at all there's nothing left and yet the war still goes on because these people hate russia more than they value the lives of the ukrainians and while i myself don't necessarily have any affinity any affinity or affiliation with the ukrainians I'm not advocating for them to die, especially in a war that they can't win. If they're going to fight a war they can't win, they can fight that war on their own time and on their own dime. But these people running my government would rather sacrifice my life for Ukraine's unwinnable war. And they all know it's unwinnable. But they keep doubling down. It's, it's a really bad situation. And I believe that it will end, like I said earlier, just a few moments ago, with the NATO summit, guaranteeing this situation, this this conundrum we found ourselves in, is going to result, it's going to end in the destruction of the Ukrainian state. Every week that goes by, I'm just more convinced that's how this is going to end. If Ukraine is not allowed to make peace because NATO just doesn't want peace. They want war, they want to destroy Russia, but they can't get it. And they're too immature to admit that they are not gonna be able to get what they want. And they would rather just continue fighting Russia. Then that means the only way this ends is through essentially a complete Russian occupation of Ukraine. We'll see exactly how Ukraine gets partitioned, but I don't see a situation where Ukraine gets to keep even half of its landmass. Now, perhaps they will. I just see circumstance forcing Russia to go for the gold. To go for the gold. It's because what else do they have? What else else do they have 
if Ukraine's not going to negotiate, NATO doesn't want to negotiate, they, they turned down the peace treaty, you saw those treaties, those draft treaties the Russians showed off, with the Ukrainians having initialed it, and then Ukraine turns their back on it. Ukraine turned their back on Minsk 2, they turned their back on Minsk 1, they, they, tur- they turned their back on the, the wheat, the grain deal, the grain, uh, on the, oh my goodness, I'm tripping over my words, they used the ports, the, the safe harbor, to bring to smuggle weapons into Ukraine to fight Russia. They weren't supposed to do that. The Ukrainians just can't honor a treaty to save their life. At least that's the Russian perspective. And if the Ukrainians can't be trusted to honor a treaty and NATO, nobody in NATO is willing to force them to honor the treaty. Well, then the obvious solution is that there just can't be a a Ukraine to begin with. And if there is going to be a Ukraine, it's going to be a very, very small state in Europe that can't, that physically cannot harm Russia in whatever way, shape, and form. That's how I see this ending. Ukraine's ability to fight is falling off of a cliff because of these ridiculous losses that they are suffering. And we we enabled this with all the weapons and, and money and ammunition and aid that we've given them under the, the, the rather false assumption that we were being humanitarian with all this aid. We were helping Ukraine. Well, let's say it, a lot of people believe that. But the, the functional result of that is that we prolonged a war that didn't need to happen to begin with and that didn't need to last as long as it did because not only could we have made, not only could we have forced the Ukrainians to honor their end of the deal with Minsk II and ended this before it began, not only could we have not deliberately sabotaged the peace that was being worked out, that was almost worked out between Russia and Ukraine uh, back in March and April of 2022, when a month after the war began, we sabotaged that peace. And by giving them, just handing out weapons and money like candy, not only have we guaranteed the destruction of Ukraine, but now we've guaranteed that we are broke as a joke because we're all out and there's nothing left to give. There is no more face to save. There's going to be only humiliation. And I'm not entirely sure that I trust the response of the people in charge with, you know, to that humiliation. They really don't like being embarrassed, but they're about to get embarrassed by the Russians winning completely. I believe a victory that is going to be so complete, Russia will be unchallenged in Europe for the rest of this century or something close to that. And we are going to be sitting here with no artillery talking about how we're going to defend Taiwan from, from China. It's, it's a very interesting dangerous and peculiar situation we find ourselves in uh and we can only hope that it doesn't go south we can only hope but that my lovely lovely listeners is all i have for you today i do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast the world is changing the u.s is out of ammo uh we'll see what happens but whatever happens we'll have fun watching it together now, I've been your host, Hi, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics.
So till we meet again next Monday, servus.